and welcome to a very special episode of the Overinvested podcast. I'm your usual host, Gavia, and my co-host Morgan is not with us this week. Instead, I am joined by a couple of fellow Black Sales fans, because Morgan inexplicably does not love Black Sales. Um, this will be a spoiler-filled podcast. It's going to be going into lots of historical and literary context for the show. It's very in-depth. It is going to be perhaps the most overinvested episode ever. And... Um, <laughs> So I am joined by Elizabeth and Natasha. Um, Elizabeth Minkle is, um, actually we do a, a kind of fandom newsletter together called The Rec Centre and she also has a podcast called Fansplaining. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi. And my other uh, guest is the literary scholar Natasha Simonova. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hello, I'm Natasha. I'm a fellow and lecturer in early modern and 18th century English at Exeter College at the University of Oxford. Yeah, we've, we've been exchanging a lot of emails, especially Elizabeth and Natasha, for like very, very intricate kind of historical detail for the background of this show. Um, I think possibly like if you follow Elizabeth and I, you may have known that we kind of put together a reading list, not just of background material for the historical background of the show, but also stuff that our favourite character, Thomas Hamilton, might have had in his personal 18th century library. So <laughs> shit's going to get deep. <laughs> However, we are starting at the comparatively shallow end with Treasure Island, which is, you know, the alleged source text for this TV show. <laughs> um, the show is kind of meant to be a prequel to Treasure Island, and it loosely is, but the showrunners kind of characterise it uh, Treasure Island being like a child-friendly, bodlerized version of what happened to the main characters decades ago. But I think Natasha and Elizabeth have a lot of thoughts on kind of the relationship between those two texts and like how it matters to the show. Mm -hmm. So full disclosure, um, I was once a research assistant on the new Edinburgh edition of Robert Louis Stevenson. So I got to know his prose and his horrible handwriting very well. I wasn't working on Treasure Island, but I was uh, working on some of his other novels and reading, you know, six different drafts of the same scene. And my conclusion from that was that as a writer, he's somewhat overrated. And <laughs> which I think is something that Elizabeth will agree with. I also yeah. agree. Um, I didn't actually finish rereading Treasure Island, but I was a bit like, this is annoying. <laughs> But the thing is, I mean, I read it when I was uh, quite quite young. You probably did as well. It has this status as a kind of classic pirate narrative where so much of our understanding of what pirates are like and what a pirate story is like comes from. So in that sense, it's significant to connect Black Sails uh, so directly to this particular story so that we know that what we're looking at is not just a historical narrative, but it's also one that's embedded within this whole um, intertextual realm of the pirate story. To read Treasure Island after seeing the show, it's hard to see these characters like flattened back into, you know, what they originally were. And it's interesting to me because it's true that I think the book is responsible for like all of our pirate lore, right? But it was based on the stories that were being told about real pirates. And so the show kind of restores the complexity of those real pirates on which he based. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I, I kind of fast. think like the, if the pre-Treasure Island kind of pirate fascination is like, obviously it's kind of like a boy's own adventure kind of thing with the book. But before that, it was sort of like true crime fandom or something where mm. everyone was like reading yeah. all these newsletters and stuff about gory incidents. And they even have that 
in black sails with that young woman who's just mm-hmm. like so excited to meet someone who met the terrible Charles Vane and it's like what about humanity um, but obviously Treasure Island is the cheesiest thing ever and it's all like yo ho ho mm-hmm. uh, it's brutal although can you imagine if John Silver had spoken the way he does in the book in the show I just mm-hmm. that would be just imagine it I can imagine a meme about that <laughs> yeah <laughs> And a bottle of rum, yes. Although even Stevenson is is aware of that as being an artificial thing. Um, I think I mentioned to both of you, there's a, a little kind of uh, fable or story that he does where the characters break character and start talking to each other about their roles within the story. This is like and, an, ex- an extra thing. Yeah. It's not like a secret chapter or something. Uh, yes, it's. Uh, I think it's one of his fables. It's just about two pages long, and it's Silver and the captain talking to each other and basically saying that um, Silver says the reason why he's the villain is because the author has made him that way. I mean, that's that's actually interesting. Like that when you sent that to me, I was like, this is far more interesting than anything that happens in Treasure Island. But I mean, that's also that's a theme that Black Sails, I think, does quite, quite well. Mm-hmm. The idea yeah. of like, you know, I, I will choose to make myself the villain or I will choose to make you the villain, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's flat. It's flat. It's deliberately flat. And then a lot of the work that goes into expanding it is to then make it three-dimensional again. I mean, do you feel like, do you ever feel, I, I feel kind of ungenerous when I think about Treasure Island. I'm like, sucks for children, <laughs> for boys specifically, he said. Mm-hmm. This is not for girls. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like, it's weird because it's like, it, it it sort of reminds me of like when people read, there are lots of people who read fic before they see the source material, right? And then they see the source material and they're like, wait, this was what? Really? You know? And this is like that except extreme in my, in my view. So. Well, because it has a status as a canonical source material, the relationship ends up being different from what you would normally see in fic, which I think is something that you talked about on Pansplaining repeatedly, that the sorts of um, intertextual relationships that, um, fan fiction has to its source is much more, I suppose, effective. Yeah, I, I actually don't know. And I, I wonder if on Fathom's Deep, the, the creators have ever talked about this. I heard Steinberg talking about how they actually didn't think of Treasure Island as a canonical, as canonical in this world, which I thought was an interesting relationship to a source text. Well, that's a different sense of canonical than the one I'm using. Yeah, sure. But I mean, I think in, also in the sense of like... Spanish canon. Yeah, right. Like I, I don't, I don't get the sense that they actually like the book either, right? Mm. I think they like it as much as we do. So right. we just, but then I mean, they can't the do because if you think about like what Treasure Island is compared to what the show is, it's just like, like basically the only thing about Treasure Island where I was like, yeah, that's pretty good, is I think it was quite a good illustration of like a creepy, abusive adult from a kid's perspective. Because you can see how stupid the kid yes. is and they're getting taken in, but it's, you can also see how shit the evil adult is and it's like that's good that's very series of unfortunate events you've done it well and every other aspect of this is like extremely hokey and all just some like middle-aged man being like let's go on a ship and find some treasure (laughs) but stop judging it (laughs) but if we stop judging it we're being very mean to this 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 (laughs) dead man and i apologize i wrote in the notes treasure island sucks so i have to get it out i have to get it out all right but yes no let's stop judging it and I wrote in the notes that literary quality doesn't matter because the point is the status that it has in the culture. Yeah. That they need that to to tie to. To the extent that it doesn't really matter how good it is. It, the, what matters is that how influential it is. I'd be fascinated to read 
essentially a fanfic about Robert Louis Stevenson writing Treasure Island within the world of Black Sails. And like, wow, if, he, okay. if he met John Silver or heard about John Silver from the boy in real life or something, and then wrote it down, like the idea I mean, of the timeline doesn't like quite autobiography. Well, no, no, of course, like none of the none of the dates match up, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so he he would magically be alive like a hundred years sooner. Yeah, or we could just ignore the concept of Robert Louis Stevenson and have it be like a real memoir by a young man talking about what happened to him with his childhood meeting John Silver. Oh my god, are you going to write Jim Hawkins fan fiction? Is no, what you're I don't have that amount of free time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, Robert Louis Stevenson was to an extent writing fan fiction himself. Or at least he was, you know, mimicking a particular genre. And um, in one of his books, he puts Walter Scott in as a character just because he really likes him. So I think he would have understood the impulse that... I feel like you secretly have a soft spot for him. Well, she, she were, they were co-workers for years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we were like this. Um, you can't not feel like you have some kind of intimate connection with someone when you've been transcribing five of his drafts. And you're thinking, oh, God, why are you making it worse? <laughs> but, so uh, thinking about Treasure Island um, helps us to think about the way that this show is playing with intertextuality and with metatextuality, that sense that uh, it's not just a narrative, it's a narrative within a whole set of other narratives. And that's questioning the truth value of those other narratives and how we decide how something is true. So wait, intertextuality versus metatextuality. Yes. Can, can we break those down? So intertextuality is about how texts talk to each other, how you realize that a text is in dialogue with other texts. Right. And then metatextual is self, self-referential, self right? Yes. And uh, referring to its status as a text rather than a kind of tr- transparent, truthful account. When in movies, actors break the fourth wall and yes. talk directly to the camera. It's yeah. metatextual. Yes. Which is like, although not literally true for Black Sails, is very much present throughout the whole show because you have like so many... You know, you have so many like scenarios where characters are talking about themselves as a character and as the protagonist mm-hmm. of their story. Constantly. And that sort yeah, of thing. yeah. I remember the very first Thomas scene, and he says, "I guess that's where you and I come into the story." Yes. You know, and it feels like they well, the way they write these lines in it feels like natural way of talking, but it's mm-hmm. like kind of ridiculous in when it all adds up because it's like that's clearly what they're doing. You know, it's like very clear references. So, I remember I wrote a tweet when I was. Uh, live tweeting it for the first time and I uh, pointed out that you know around the middle of season two I felt so clever for thinking this is a show about narrative and then season three and four is like beating you over the head with the fact that <laughs> life is a narrative and you're like okay and then you reach the, the finale oh, yeah. and you're just like what's real anyway think about like what storytelling is and it's just like this is too much everyone is just spending like the post finale like period arguing over what's real and it's like the point is <laughs> There's no such thing. That's, I mean, that's an interesting point, though. It's like, it literally, they say it out loud many, many times, uh-huh. right? And like, Jack was the final, in his final speech begins like, a story is true, a story is untrue, or whatever. Uh-huh. Literally saying it, and still the, the amount of discourse yeah. about what's true and what's not true is incredible to me. I simultaneously find that very frustrating and also uh, find it completely yeah. un- understandable because obviously we're all so invested. One does tend to like support one's interpretation of canon as if you're in the middle of a fight over a football team or something. But also like in my experience of kind of pop culture criticism, 
even when creatures are banging you over the head with themes, the vast majority of the audience just doesn't get it. Because obviously most people are not like plugging their entire brain into understanding a TV show. But I wonder if it's about something about like humans and stories. Like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, we like to be right. And there, if if the if the end if the end of the story is, you know, your interpretation is just as equally valid as the other interpretation, then obviously you're gonna be pissed off because it means right. you're technically right. wrong. But it's also right. frustrating because we want stories to tell us what they are. And particularly with endings, we want to know for certain. We don't want that lady in the tiger ambiguity. That quite often that ends up feeling quite cheap because it's like the author is reneging on their responsibility to actually tell us what the story is. I don't think it it feels that way in Black Sails. I think the way it works is perfect. But I think that's where the frustration can come from. People want to know the facts. Do you, in your knowledge of the history of, uh, you know, the last three four hundred years of literature is this a, <laughs> is this a constant were there times when audiences were more okay with ambiguity that you know of or is it something that you've observed mm. i i tend to study cases where people either is kind of demand for the author to tell them more about the ending or they end up writing their own because that's the dynamic that i'm most interested in the like the earliest mm-hmm. like the the earliest fan fiction in a way that we would actually even recognize it as such, right? More or less, yes. Yeah. So uh, I wrote I wrote a book about this. Shameless plug. What's it called? It is called Early Modern Authorship and Prose Continuations, which is a very snappy title, but it's about the sequels and it's about that process of getting to the end and wanting more and how that works in the early modern period. But then, you know, when we don't have a very well-developed sense of fiction as a category, I suppose these questions become more ambiguous. Because in early, like back 300 years ago, it was very muddled, right? Yeah. Very. It's interesting. I I wonder, I don't know enough about um, 20th century literature, which is, I feel like the time when like metatextuality really rose. So I'd be curious, but I don't know if any of us have studied that extensively. Is that the church bells if if ever there's been a time when people could be comfortable with that ambiguity but it feels because it's it's true too this, this is somewhat culturally situated um you know definitely with an american audience i think an anglo anglo american audience there there is some sort of emphasis on um this kind of arc that resolves whereas i'm not sure that's that's globally true mm. in terms of storytelling well i would say that uh, that kind of late 20th century postmodern metafictional tendency, very few of those novels ended up becoming kind of popularly successful. It's always been more of an avant-garde thing because it is messing with people's expectations. Right. And so like, I'm trying to think of like, I feel like there must have been like some television show that ended ambiguously in the last like 30 years that like caused people to have a crisis. The Sopranos? But there's like, I feel like there's a reasonable amount of prestige dramas like, as opposed to just having a cliffhanger, like, intentionally or ambiguous, and, like, sometimes people get very annoyed about it. And, I mean, I've not, I don't know what happens in Lost, but obviously everyone was, like, continually fighting over what happened in Lost. But I feel like Black Sails is, like, in a weird way, it's almost as experimental as you can get within the bounds of being mainstream television, because you, you can watch it on the level of being, like, this is Game of Thrones, but the ending is genuinely very strange, like, narratively. I mean, it doesn't come across mm. as, like, oh, this is, like, avant-garde weird art, but it's not ambiguous in the way that like Inception is ambiguous where you're like is it real or isn't it it's like genuinely inviting yes. you to come and interrogate the text and then rewatch the show from the beginning which is 
much more kind of intentionally educational. It teaches and delights. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> Because, like, I feel like um, recently the TV show Legion, the, as, like, an adult X-Men show, got an overzealous amount of uh, media coverage from TV criticism. I actually recapped it and wouldn't particularly recommend reading my recaps because by the end of the series, I was just like, this show thinks it's a lot smarter than it is. And so does the response to it because people were so fascinated by the concept of a drama that's, like, a genre show about mental illness that has an unreliable narrator. And it's like, actually, doesn't necessarily make it good. Whereas Black Sails, <laughs> once again... <laughs> Slip that into all your Much reviews. Smarter. <laughs> this is okay, but have you heard of Black Sails? Yeah. Black Sails, better than everything. <laughs> it's funny, though, though it's true, because I feel like there are different levels people watch it on. Obviously, there's a lot of speculation about, like, the, the dude bro watching it or whatever. I just watched a season two trailer. Have you guys seen it? I, well, yeah, because I was trying to find trailers to embed into an article where I was literally just recommending Black Sails. <laughs> um, and, like, they're all just bad trailers. They don't articulate what the show is about. Yeah, like a bad trailer, but it was also like, this is for season two, and it was like, judgment. And then it was like, boom, boom. And it's just like every moment of action literally distilled into, just as I thought the Civil War, Captain America Civil War trailer, just took every moment of like intimacy from the movie and put it in one trailer. This was like the opposite. It was the reverse, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then the very last segment is like, it's like James saying something like, there's some line about how he's like, he always thought he would like die, die in battle or whatever, but he was like, but I guess it's time for judgment or something. I don't even remember this line being in the show, but it must have been. And I was just like, out of context, this is so miscontextualized. And I know they didn't want to like explain why there was judgment happening. But it just made it seem like they were just like committing some murders for gold. And then the stuff that's going to be really gripping as a trailer will only appeal to people who are already watching the show whereas if you have this like on stars and you're like guess what guys the show exists and it has pirates and very expensive spaceship battles it's like right technically accurate you've got my attention and then you tune in and by the end of it you're like i'm a gay anarchist now yeah <laughs> <laughs> well but i feel like it worked against the movie you already talked about this at length but i like i you know if i had watched i was thinking while i watched that trailer i would never watch this show and i was like this is so weird i like i love all these people and they're just doing things that seem really inane to me and like because it was so it was it was deliberately meant to kind of shift the context like even just like eleanor doing things or vain not i don't love him but you know like everyone else who i like I don't know. It's fine. It's too I mean, late. It's yeah. It's, too it's late. also. I mean, trailers. Unless you literally have the best trailer maker in the world or a fan vid person who's already a fan of it, trailers are never good for anything interesting because there's a very limited range of kind of set frameworks for advertising stuff in a trailer. Which is also why they couldn't advertise the young pope because the young pope trailers were like, imagine if it was the pope, but he was younger, young sexy. And it's like, <laughs> is well, that not what it's about? Primarily, it's primarily about elderly Italian Catholics arguing about religious doctrine. And the young Pope is a conservative psychopath. I had no idea. I thought it was just about a Pope who's young. It's Have you not seen it? Good. No, it's, I haven't it's, seen it's it. It's like Italian absurd art cinema. That's great. I should see it. You've, you've made it sound better than the trailer. which There's a lot it. of football in it. There's a lot uh, of nuns playing football. Yeah, nuns playing football. Right? It's, it's not brilliant. just like about Jude Law ordering a Diet Coke. I mean, that I mean, is a very funny that. aspect of it, yes. <laughs> But like it's it's just absolutely hilarious in a way that doesn't necessarily you can't be like oh here's a trailer for this comedy about the Pope because when you tune in they'll also be like about half an hour of each episode will be elderly Italian men discussing religious doctrine. <laughs> Sounds really good actually. Perfect. It's, it's, okay, it's great. Sale. Wonderful. My it's next show. Sales. Let's All do a right. podcast about the young Pope. <laughs> <laughs>
Morgan and I will definitely be doing that on the official <laughs> podcast thing. So, <laughs> all right, I'm gonna listen. I can't wait. I will after look forward I see to it. that. All right, back to Black Sales. Yeah. All right. So yes, it's a hard show to have a trailer for, partly because it holds so many of its cards so close to its chest. I actually was gonna say, like, do you think that if they shifted something? But I don't want to even say that because I don't think. I don't know. Do you think? I think about the, the arc of the second season sometimes and how rewarding it was to see the first time but also i mean we've discussed there's so many because because we're obsessed with the minor characters who are the stars of the second season uh obviously i wish i had more and that it was different but i understand why it was you know meted out in such a i mean it's so deliberately meted out right Mm -hmm. yeah so i guess that's just why i have to read and write fan fiction it's fine i'll let it go (laughs) No, I agree, and this is something we've discussed, I think. You do want more of his flashbacks, and personally, when I was watching it, I wanted the flashbacks to be in chronological order, which would have ruined the kind of the big reveal sense in 205, but in a way, maybe because I was spoiled for it, but it didn't feel to me like a big reveal, and it felt, I mean, clearly it worked as a big reveal for a lot of people. Um, I wasn't spoiled for it. mm -hmm. Did you think it was a big reveal? Um, it was more like I was already shipping it and so I felt mm-hmm. very validated. But I also like I feel like because I had seen like very abstractly some gift sets, but like not really like I definitely so I saw the scene of Thomas and James hugging in the field at the end of the last episode. But I didn't, you know, like if you do see them hugging. Yeah, I'd seen that gif as well. So like but also I feel like it's a big reveal if you or either not, once again, objectively analytical, or you're like working from a very heteronormative standpoint. Because I feel like if I'd been watching that show while it was airing, by the time they reached that scene, I would be like, I definitely know what's happening here, but I feel very validated sort of thing. <laughs> that's how, <laughs> that's how I do, felt, yeah, right? Yeah, they do set it up. Right, and if you're like, but, but the thing is, I mean, I guess, often seeing queer subtext, that's very rarely actually made text, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why I was slightly like, oh, oh, it's actually going to happen, right? Because that totally could have, I mean, obviously that that was the point, but like in a different show, mm-hmm. they could have had everything that led up to that. Yeah. And then nothing more. And you'd be like, well, they clearly loved each other, mm-hmm. you know? I, like, know? I know. Making those eyes, a lot of eyes. But in a way, it makes me sad that we're still at that point. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, but why wouldn't we be? Look at no. in the context of every other no, in the, in the context of every other show, yes. Um, but I sort of wish we were at the point where they would just tell it in chronological order and really give weight to that love story, and it wouldn't be, like, a shocking revelation. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. I feel like this is now a good time to kind of segue into the Thomas Hamilton zone. Great, let's let's enter it. I live in the Thomas Hamilton zone. <laughs> I adore him, but I don't think anyone does quite as much as Elizabeth. She's just... Natasha also really likes him. Well, you. Have I mean, both, I will fight you point. for I superiority. Feel like you should be doing like a Thomas Hamilton zine together, <laughs> um, because it's just like the amount of screen time this character has. Obviously, I mean, everyone listening to this podcast is aware, but he has maybe like half an hour collective screen time in the entire show. Yep. And like the amount of material that has been reverse engineered from that is just truly astonishing. And I love all of it because I do now have kind of you know, strong feelings about what his favorite book was. You know, just today, Elizabeth was DMing us, like, would Thomas Hamilton like Purcell or love Purcell? (laughs) (laughs) I say love. 
Yeah. I mean, that's partly because I also love Purcell. That's so. all, the, all, literally the only reason I said that. Because how could you not? Thomas Hamilton, though. I, I understand that he doesn't have a lot of screen time. And you know what I'm going to say? I am cognizant of the, like, general huxing of, uh, of a show. It is completely different from the kind oh. of okay, general but hux. When I say general know. huxing, though, what I mean is that, like, okay, first of all, have you guys seen the, the Donald Gleason thing where he p- pitches ideas for general hux movies? No, but I'm sure I would love all of them because I love how much he hates that character. (laughs) It's so good. Yeah. And he's like, hooks, shooks. It was really, oh my God, I can't even. The whole thing was incredible. And he does a really nice delivery the whole time. Basically, it was really funny to me. So the the problem is that like the Star Wars fandom elevated General Hux to like be the star of Star Wars and like some like rom-com character, even though he's like a cartoon general, right? Like cartoon Nazi. He's he's farcical and he's also extremely evil and sadistic, but not like evil in a fun, sexy way. So it's like, so people were like, we're going to write like so much like incredibly intense romance about like General Hux and Kylo Ren. And then obviously The Last Jedi comes along and it's like, no, he is a farcical supervillain and also very terrible. He was so good in Last Jedi though. He's just like oh, doing he's wonderful. it up. He's just, I fucking loved him. So I, yeah, I love this video. I think it was with that guy from MTV, him pitching movies that were about General Hux. And I was like, this is hilarious. And it's also ironic because people would 100% write all these fics and not even think that this is a joke. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is because there is this tendency for people in fandom to elevate minor characters to major character status, and I don't want to be that person. But Thomas Hamilton is obviously the most important. But he also, I feel like, even though it's not sort of like, oh, you know, I'm I'm picking this like tragically underrepresented background character, it it is definitely the case that he has like a pivotal role in the show. And the That's reason true. why we picked him is because like he's the character who's underexplored, because like you know, we already know about James Flint. And we already know, you know, so it's like the reason why we're delving so intensely into this is because they gave us a tease. So it's the classic fanfic problem, you know? Yeah, I mean, but I also think that, like, to understand Flint, like, this is this is what made Flint, right? I mean, not just no, Thomas, no, obviously Miranda too, right? So it's yeah. like, but also the thing that, one of the things that really, I mean, beyond just thinking he's, you know, this pure angel that I want to stare at all the time, uh, like, the, there's something very specifically ideological going on with that with that character and why that character was invented um amongst everyone else with a major well Mari was invented too right and but a lot of the other and people Max. Made, yes actually that's true so i was gonna say like yeah eleanor and max and Mari are there's obviously quite a lot of characters in this that are new no no but i was gonna say ideologically invented thinking in the context of what's rogers and what actually happened Right. So to the thing that and I think I said this when we were on Fathoms Deep, too, but the, one of the things that really interests me about their decision to kind of create the storyline was like. It's not necessary because actually what happened. In history, right, it's like the pardons happened for a completely different reason with a similar effect of what actually happens in the show. So to create this particular ideological stance. Uh, it is interesting to me because I feel like. Uh, it's not actually present in history, or if it no, is, no. But I mean, it, it's it wasn't recorded in, from the perspective of the modern audience, because obviously the original, what happened in real life that Elizabeth's mentioning, is that they put forward the pardons, a bunch of people took them. Woods Rogers was the person who actually offered the pardons and was the governor, but it wasn't this whole thing about like freedom and like utopianism and stuff. It was just because the pirates were getting too much of a trouble, and this was a pragma- a pragmatic way of handling the problem. So it's much more cynical. Whereas in the show, it's easier 
and more comprehensible to have this kind of almost like anti-fascist viewpoint where it's like the people who want the pardons are good guys who want to improve the world and everyone else is like this monstrous imperial guy who's stomping in your face forever can i query anti-fascist yeah um i didn't mean that literally in the literal definition of (laughs) anti-fascist do it no i just um you know because that seems to set up a kind of goodies versus baddies binary which i don't think the show Mm. is actually doing no i definitely don't think so either because obviously they're all extremely murdery. So very, very murdery. Yeah, but I mean, there's also the idea that like, all right, so one thing that Natasha said to me, and do you remember when you said this that really struck me was the idea of like the 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 perceived radicalism of, of Thomas Hamilton is actually that he's like incredibly committed to the system. Yes. Is that, is that the correct, do you think that was a correct paraphrasing of what you originally said? Yes, I said that the radicalism of him was in how committed he was that he took a lot of ideas that were kind of percolating at the time and he actually fully believed them rather than advocating them as a form of political expediency. Right. But he's he's suggesting like a world that, you know, it's the whole see the world as it should be, which is, I think, kind of runs in opposition to what in the later seasons James and, and Madi are trying to do. I mean, it's an interesting question to see, like, how would that, how would you reconcile? Well, he evolves more empathy towards the end of the series because he's no longer purely motivated by revenge and by that point he's met Maddie who's like this new influence on him I think that that James James and Maddie's goals in the end of the show run in opposition to the ideas that Thomas and James McGraw were putting forth 10 years prior well, that's because they come from such a place of idealism about what the world was actually like. Yeah, absolutely. And they were right. working as they were at that point. They were still authority figures because they were literally the British Navy and a British aristocrat. And by the end of it, it's like, oh well, okay, you're just you know, you know, you're hiding in like a secret camp in a field, and you're a terrorist. Yeah, it's true. But I do think that he goes through an ideological shift, James. Yes. Oh yeah, yes, for sure. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's that's entirely about the the. Not being in an authority position, I mean, in a way, he's in some position of authority. Obviously, he's outside of the structures of society, but... Yeah, I mean, uh, he's a captain, but I meant, you know, within the political structure. Right. But, you know, would he have been willing... I mean, it, there's even, obviously, a ma- massive shift between the first two seasons and, the, the you know, in, in the present day. Like, setting aside the the flashbacks, right? The idea of, like, you know, would he have taken the pardons if they had shown up in the first two seasons no <laughs> no he would i think he would have if it, they'd shown up in the first season because that's what he is initially after i think i'm not sure that taking the pardons would have led to the outcome that he is still sort of hoping for at that point right but i mean he was going to try to u- use uh abigail ash's mm-hmm. leverage to try to get the pardons yeah right like he's still thinking about pardons which yeah. is you know kind of fascinating and i mean he even says in the in, in season three when they're in imprisoned um right when they arrive on the maroon island you know he's like this is ex- like what what's being offered right now is exactly what i was going yeah. for like three seconds ago and like maybe it's better for me to just go away because now i'm super mad and mm-hmm. <laughs> like i won't stand for this fuck all this right yeah you know and it's like i don't know it's interesting and i'm, I'm not sure i chalk it entirely up to just like him being tipped over the edge by miranda's death I also don't feel like his desire for the pardons and his whole plan in the first two seasons is really a thought through ideological position. Yeah. I think it's carrying on this sense of vendetta and the sense of trying to fulfill Thomas's plan, but it's not necessarily a realistic vision of what 
the Bahamas could be like. I I mean, I think he's ideologically muddled the entire time. Yes. Like, right? Because it's like a, you know, by the end, it's just like, oh, is this, what's this about? You know? <laughs> right? Which is hard. It's about fighting fascism. <laughs> Like I think we, you know, I, I, I think it's on. I think we're we're kidding ourselves if we think that he is, you know, this ideologically pure mm-hmm. freedom fighter. Yeah. By the end, and yeah, you know, that's complicated. That's hard. I mean, the, the especially the idea of, of any of the enslaved or formerly enslaved or black characters who say like, "Can we trust these people?" And it's like, can can you trust him? Like, I'm not sure, you know. And it doesn't matter because then the show ends. But. Yeah, but I think that's an important part of the ambiguity of the ending because, as we've been saying before, you get so swept along with the uh, James Flint version of the story, mm. and you feel so sympathetic to his point of view that um, you lose sight of the fact that what he's presenting is not necessarily a thought through ideological position. Sure. And that perhaps he does need to be stopped, yeah. even if it's not mm. in the way that ends up happening. Right. Do you think he needs to be stopped? Well, I think from a certain perspective, definitely, because he's going to get a lot of, he has done and he will do, get a lot of people killed. Sure. But maybe you wouldn't have done it in the way. I don't know. I don't want to get into this discourse point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, I'm just like James Flint, ride or die. I know. He has never done anything wrong in his life ever. But apart from that. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, I obviously feel the same way. But I also, part of the reason that he appeals to me so much is because of these contradictions and this ambiguity or ambivalence you know like I, I don't know i find that very relatable there are definitely times when i'm like i have the strongest feeling about this and it's like actually even in the back of my mind i'm like but actually the reason i'm saying this is for like a totally different reason that i'm not acknowledging right and how many people have you murdered um too many to count but i've never <laughs> done anything wrong don't worry thomas has forgiven me as he does to all people apparently so well, don't worry about it don't- we don't know. That's one of the other frustrations is that we don't know what happens. You know, we know what happens in our hearts. Yes. And what's happening in my heart is wishing that I had the artistic capabilities to paint Thomas Hamilton like an illuminated icon with a halo above his head. Okay. <laughs> no, real talk though. I think that he would 100% forgive him. Really? Mm-hmm. Yes. I yes. also this is actually something that kind of bothers me. I, you know, I, I've read literally every fic that's that's readable, even some that are less readable in the Thomas Hamilton tag, as long as it's not Thomas James John Silver. You know, there there seems to be a, a difficulty, and I've complained about this Natasha T before, uh, of the idea that you could have a character who who would forgive. I I hundred percent believe Peter when he says that Thomas forgived him, and I hundred percent believe. And I mean, maybe this is just because I see him, he's the only explicitly Christian character who's not pastor fuckface. And, you know, he's the only one who really means it. And that's literally what, what you're trying to do. Well, that's one of the things you're trying to do when you go to church. For similar reasons, I was actually surprised by, I mean, I don't think this is like a wrong direction to take, but I was surprised by the number of fanfics that really dig into the concept of Thomas being horrified by James murdering his mm-hmm. father. 
And I'm like, obviously you're going to have conflicted feelings if someone murders your dad. But your dad is super terrible. He's essentially your lifelong enemy. The only reason you have an ongoing relationship with him is because you're a really good Christian boy. And also he like holds the purse strings. Of your I think it's more that one. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. So it's like, I don't feel like this is something where he's going to be super cop about it. Especially since his father literally fucking ruined their lives. Like there was a point where it just becomes like a mildly conflicted aspect of you being glad someone murdered your terrible dad. But also, I think the framing of James needing forgiveness is not necessarily the correct one because... It's not that he needs forgiveness from Thomas. He hasn't really done anything against Thomas. I think he might feel that he is in need of some kind of absolution from his general life. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that it's more, oh, my, uh, here I am reunited with my, like, very pure-hearted boyfriend. How is he going to feel about the fact that I've literally spent the last 10 years murdering Mm -hmm. people in cold blood? Like, not, a lot of his actions are not it's not just killing people for a cause he's literally yeah. you know he's killed people straight up right but and that's so- also about how he feels about that i don't think you can kind of externalize all of it onto thomas no but i because- do think in the fan fiction that we're now collectively mm. writing in this episode <laughs> like they're gonna have to talk about it oh yeah yeah but i but i also think with a nice yeah. therapist from georgia <laughs> You know, okay, when I read when I read Harry Potter fics set in the modern day, I get annoyed when they go to therapy. I'm like, these people would never go like Harry Potter would never go to therapy, right? Like I know. He's just gonna hold that Gosh. in forever, you know? Sorry. <laughs> fine, fine. Because there definitely are some some characters who would go Hermione to therapy. Hermione could go to therapy, you know? Yeah. yeah, but like Harry Potter, absolutely not. You know who's got a beard. You know who's got a beard? Thomas Hamilton. Yeah, do you think he'd shave it? Well that Yes. Mm. When well, he do you think it's a grief beard? Actually, or I just said think... that very emphatically from my own taste. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't a characterization point. Uh, yeah, I feel like he would, you know, once they got back to wherever they're going. They're leaving, right? We all agree that yeah. they should leave. I agree that they should leave. Um, I don't think that we're meant to think that they leave. I don't care. They they left to me. Yeah. All stories are true. They they're leave. leaving. I'm sending them to a city because I don't agree with the remote farm i thought it was avocados was it not avocados they were gonna grow are you tr- <laughs> are you trolling me <laughs> just a bit <laughs> can you imagine why well, i would love to see a fic where they were growing some deeply unsexy crap <laughs> you know <laughs> well like pulse. Yeah, what's, what's a pulse <laughs> the bean farm oh yeah beans beans, beans. ideal yeah Lentils. we're like yeah, we're like, what's wrong with potatoes? Good, solid American crop. <laughs> what about mushrooms? Because you grow those indoors in the dark. I... <laughs> okay, no. How are they going to have the... Mushrooms now have too much erotic tension for me oh. thanks to the combination of, of, uh, of uh, Hannibal and Phantom uh, Oh, are mushrooms also a thing in Hannibal? Even yes. I know that, and I have not watched Actually, a single episode Trek. of Hannibal. Oh, yes. They're not sexy in Star Trek. Yeah, but there's time. I'm I'm really rooting for Stamets to fall in love with a mushroom alien <laughs> that has taken the embodied form of his dead boyfriend. How dare you? I'm just going to put it out there and say I don't think they're particularly sexy in Phantom Thread either. But we can agree to disagree. I mean, it really depends what you're into. <laughs> uh, no, actually, and I hate mushrooms, so that was like doubly gross for me. I was, like, really happy because I was like, you've done something really horrible with the one food that I absolutely never eat because I fucking hate mushrooms, too. So it was like, I'm saved. <laughs> I have not seen Phantom Friend. Oh, don't. Don't. Oh, no. We won't say anymore. Okay, but let's just put this out there. 
Okay, do you think we've talked enough about time? I mean, obviously we haven't talked enough about the Hamiltons. Hmm. I'm trying to think. Because we, t- we were talking about Thomas forgiving him. And um, I can talk about it as a romance ending, which is something I've been thinking about. And maybe connect up to Don Quixote, Don if I can manage it. Um, is, is, that yes. how you, is that how you say it? Yes. Is that how British people say it? I'm afraid so. Oh my god. Oh, that's incredible. Have we ever heard it as Don Quixote? No, we, we, we've never found uh, a foreign word that we didn't want to mispronounce. Did they ever say it out loud in the show? No, she's like, here's, here's, read this book to understand my husband. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, when one of them, Mari quotes it, mm-hmm. she doesn't like say what she's quoting. She just quotes stuff as one does. Well, she doesn't quote it. She quotes the Man of La Mancha, frustratingly. What? Say more. I uh, haven't that- read any Cervantes, so... Well, that's not Cervantes. That's a quote from the film Man of La Mancha starring Peter O'Toole. What? Yeah, I'm afraid so. If you Google it, it comes up as credited to Cervantes, but it's not from the book. <gasps> I know, I know. And I've you can't point, at, point that out because it's so beautiful. But yeah, it's not from the book. Oh my God. Is there something like that in the book? No. <gasps> I was just—I was suspicious. I love this detail. I was oh suspicious because it doesn't sound anything like Cervantes, and and it isn't. <laughs> this is really brutal. You know, people are complaining because it's like the not the contemporary translation of Meditations or whatever. Mm-hmm. This is next level. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I can't believe you haven't brought this up before. Well, it just feels mean, but also within the world of a show, I guess Cervantes wrote it. I like this. This kind of reminds me of um, when there's idiosyncrasies between Lord of the Rings and mm-hmm. The Hobbit. And obviously because he didn't know he was going to write Lord of the Rings when he wrote The Hobbit, there's a lot of weird shit that doesn't make sense canonically. And the explanation is that both books were translated by different translations from like the original Hobbitees because they're like <laughs> thousands of year old source texts. And it's like, look, it's just all in the interpretation of the factual history of these factual books based on real languages. So there. Yeah. So we can just accept Natasha's theory Perfect. here that the movie quote is actually Cervantes in the world I of black sales. Get over this. That's really good. I'm so sorry. I'm I glad did for me. You do this too, though. Like when someone I see a quote, what is that one? It was one of the guys in the Trump administration said something that Lincoln said something like, "Live every day like it's your last" or some <laughs> some ridiculous quote. So then people were like making all these ones like, "Dance like no one's watching." Abraham Lincoln, you know, and it's like. There's a Tumblr that's, uh, I think, something like, that's not Shakespeare, and it's a collection of all the things that have been attributed to Shakespeare. Oh my god. Like, you know, if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best, (laughs) Shakespeare. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so, okay, we haven't read Cervantes, you have. So we were talking about forgiveness in the ending, and um, that sense that Thomas coming back is a kind of unexpected gift for for James and also for all of us as the viewers. I think that's how a lot of people kind of reacted to it at the time. They didn't think that it was coming and that it did. And that feels almost very 18th century to me because it's that kind of um, romance ending where people surprisingly show up and particularly in the new world. And there's a kind of a surprising reunion at the end that you kind of weren't really expecting and it feels in a way artificial because um it's so much happier than you thought you were going to get but it kind of underlines that this is a constructed narrative 
Does that make sense? Yeah. It, it's interesting because yes. it's like you had to hold these things in your head at once too, the kind mm-hmm. of idea of like, I want this, mm-hmm. right? You know, but it is also, it's complicated because it's not, it's not entirely a happy ending, obviously. Mm. No. Right? No. But it's happier than it sort of has any right to be or than you expect it to be because um, for a lot of shows that are sort of tonally the way this one is, you would go end up going much darker. I think, you know, you could completely see a version of this show in which everyone dies at the end, right? Sure. I mean, one of my friends was absolutely certain that Flint was going to, like, properly die and several other characters would die at the end. And I think also because it... I mean, it is... Obviously, people kind of characterise it as Game of Thrones, but it also is, like, falling within that sort of contemporary prestige drama thing where everything is all about, like, seriousness and having, like, a downbeat ending where it's all really tragic and stuff like that to prove that, you know, life is meaningless and terrible. And this literally had the opposite ending, even though it is simultaneously ambiguous and also not entirely happy because everyone has to make compromises mm. it's just a really unique kind of framing of the I, ending i also feel like except for eleanor's death there really aren't any deaths that aren't not to say that they they're like obviously miranda's death is like very shocking and the saddest thing i think all of the deaths are very shocking they're very surprising blackbeard's death is not shocking to me because he feels like it's i mean it's well, I don't feel like we care very much emotionally about his death. And also, like, it doesn't feel like a massive surprise that he does die because he's not a very important character to the narrative. Uh, but his death, obviously, is, like, the most shocking, memorably. Uh, but, like, when you think about the deaths for Eleanor and... Um, Charles Vane. And Miranda and Charles Vane, all of those are, like, I think they're also... Yeah, amazing. well, so what, what I was going to say, the reason I brought them up is, other than Eleanor's, which feels like a bad, you know, kind of a bad twist of fate, right? Like, if that guy had just died... On the, you know in the lawn then she would still be alive right um you know the other ones feel situated within the narrative it's not like people just randomly die and it's a cruel world you know like like no Bane is executed yeah. for the what his actions and his beliefs and you know so is blackbeard yeah. and i mean eleanor brings about her own death by you know effectively you know, helping Woods Rogers and then marrying the patriarchy, the Spanish. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but also like bringing the Spanish in and then just repeating the history that she didn't want to repeat. So it's all very, you know, poetically. Right. I mean, structured. there's like an, there's obviously she has a deeply ironic death, but it does feel a bit like you know, mm-hmm. it's not like she's captured and murdered. It's like there is a very much a no, no. You know. So I think it doesn't buy it doesn't buy into that sort of grim dark right. philosophy of like you know chaos is going to murder you at any moment. Sort right. Of thing. Which is like. And I, I think it kind of fits into the broader, I think there's this, this perce- I mean, I feel like I'm pirate explaining to like random people when we talk about this and it's like, well, pirates are lawless. And I'm like, they had rules, you know, like I, I don't, I think pirates of the Caribbean actually didn't help on this front either. Cause they were like, they made a joke out of it and they were like, it's guidelines really. But like they legit, you know, obviously plenty of people involved in piracy were just looking for like a decent living. Right. But, like, yeah. you know, a lot of people who were in charge had, like, very, you know, overarching ideological views and they constructed a different sort of society, right? It wasn't just their... I'm astounded that we've not touched touched on Jacobites. Wow. Jacobites. <laughs> we can talk about the Jacobites. I was going... I was I was wanting to go in a slightly different direction with us. Oh, wait. Uh, well, let's get to Jacobites eventually, but go in, that, go in your other direction first. Okay. So, I was talking about romance, right? Oh, and yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember that? Do you remember yeah. when that happened? Yeah, go back yes. to romance. Yeah. And the idea of romance as a generic, 
frame that this story could fit into is something that interests me. Uh, but also because uh, Cervantes' book, Don Quixote, is such an important part of the story. And that's a book about a man who reads so many romances that he tries to live them out in real life without understanding the difference between the romance world and the real world. Can you can you pause for one second and explain what you mean when you say romance? Because I feel like a contemporary mm-hmm. reader might think that think of what romance means something different right now. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so not hearts and flowers, but um, a particular genre is kind of uh, going back to the Middle Ages, but working differently at this point, which is about a kind of heightened state that where people are sort of better and more beautiful and um, have more adventures and a greater destiny than perhaps people in the real world might. And where things tend to work out in this kind of providential and quasi-magical way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Were were there structures, were there like kind of tropey tropes and plot lines that were repeated through? Yes. So shipwrecks, for example, um, people being reunited on um, after being shipwrecked on islands. I mean, I I really am already plugged right into yeah. this genre. <laughs> so, already a lot of themes here that are speaking to me. <laughs> so, uh, so sometimes magic, but sometimes not. Yes, definitely serendipity. Uh, the plot often functions according to coincidence, which works in a kind of semi-magical way and sometimes an actually magical way. This seems very Tempest yes. so far. Well, the Tempest is a romance. It's often categorized that way. Yeah. That's interesting. So it's mainly a genre of prose fiction, but there are some plays that are sort of put in that box. Okay. And so you think you, you read at least this element of Black Sails as that kind of traditional romance? I feel like that's what it evokes for me, partly because, well, you know, everyone thinks that Thomas is dead and then he just shows up in this random place. Or does that, he? He does. He does. he does. he does. He absolutely does. Don't Sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and James is kind of brought there in a way that is sort of not completely realistic, right? Or that you know puts the viewer in a in a place where you know we're seeing this as a story, as something that's um, being told to Marty and therefore to us, and that's in a slightly different realm, even in you know the coloring of it. It's interesting, too, because the, you know, obviously Silver and Madi don't have a happy ending, right? No. And it, it remains ambiguous what, between the two of them, what happens, but neither of them are, you know, get, get what, obviously Madi is the one who's by far the most wronged uh, in the end of the show. Um, but the other characters all, all get happy endings, too, but it's it's much more grounded. Max's incredibly romantic speech to Anne in the snow that we all love so much is one of the more realistic i think that's one of the most realistic moments in the entire show right yeah because i mean a lot of a lot of the decisions that people make in the show it's like we obviously understand them emotionally but like they're so far beyond the normal like life experiences mm-hmm. of us mere humans in the modern day whereas you know max essentially like she's making a decision between love and a big career right. change right and just says it so quietly <laughs> so it's like this is so powerful and just like so the most like, you know nothing in my life is important if, if you're not in it or whatever the exact wording is it's just such a quiet way to say that and it's just like and it just feels so grounded to me in a way and you know no no big kiss or anything like they're just softly holding hands in the snow. And it's just really interesting. And, and even the way that Max gets her, you know, her actual happy ending with a, it's a subtle and quiet compromise. Mm. 
right? Yeah. As opposed to the other half of the crew who is playing out this like incredibly dramatic, you know, battle, right? It's as if they're like living in different worlds, even though they're mm-hmm. actually kind of fighting for the same like yeah. prize, basically. Just interesting as you know i mean it's it's definitely one of those shows where i mean it's not as pronounced as something like stranger things but they are kind of existing within slightly different genres Mm. and like they do shape the tone of the stories so like max you know she wants peace and quiet essentially and she also is someone who knows how to make compromises and have like political conversations with people so obviously that is how her story ends whereas um james blunt is pure melodrama to the end and silver too i mean you know he's like giving his speeches stomping on What's his name's head? Dufresne, sorry. Okay, I forgot that guy. So I could get super wanky about this and say that Max is in a Defoe novel and Flint. Yeah. Oh. So she is kind of Mall Flanders or Roxana, but has a happier ending where she's not forced to be repentant. She doesn't have to perform repentance at anybody. And she's, well, yeah, she's not being forced to pay attention to. Vintage gender values, shall we yeah. say? <laughs> but okay. also, if she had married that guy in Philadelphia, then she, the story that she would have told him and all of his relatives and Philadelphia society would have been a very Defoe story about her repentance. Mm. Yeah, and just coming up from this dark mm-hmm. place and finding the the one thing we all want, which is a a nice lucrative gentleman. He's and a little God. stupid. And God, don't forget God. Yeah, and God, God of course. God. Uh, okay, so wait, and what? And you're saying the other characters are in a different novel? So I said that Flint feels like he's in a revenge tragedy. Okay. Until the end, when he isn't anymore, when he can stop being Flint in that way. What's what's Silver in? What's Silver? Treasure Island. <laughs> yes! <laughs> he is literally the only character who's in a prequel to Treasure Island. <laughs> Yeah, because Billy's not like the the Billy of Treasure Island and the Billy we see, like the Billy we see, I think is like very realistically drawn person who's like Billy. Billy's the one who's in Breaking Bad. <laughs> he is the one for whom the Breaking Bad comparison is truly accurate. But you know, don't, I just feel like everything Billy does makes sense to me. I understand he's oh no, it, it makes sense, and then it doesn't. Yeah, end it does well. not end well. <laughs> Poor boy, he's just he does start off as just such a nice boy and just doesn't. You know, circumstances. Yeah. yeah. It's all right. It's all right. That's funny. All right. And what, what do we think? What do we think Maddie's in? Maddie's so tricky for me. I mean, I think part of the problem with Maddie, I think, is she was under underwritten. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, not, not even just like not enough screen time, but I think they could have done a, a lot more with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe and that's- the problem with saying what kind of novel Maddie is in is that there aren't a lot of novels that would be about someone like Maddie, unfortunately. If you, you know more than me about postcolonial fiction. Yeah, I mean, this this is post-colonial text, 100%, right? I mean, that's the most explicit way. But the entire, every every facet, is, it's not just, in, you know, um, black characters or enslaved characters. Um, but that's... I mean, Maddie's in more of like a modern uh, historical drama, historical movie. Yeah, or, or, you know, modern or relatively modern post-colonial uh, novel. So... That's part of it. But I mean, like, her actions. I mean, maybe it's impossible to separate her actions from her circumstances, I guess. Right? Mm -hmm. But she's also not being given, like, you know, it's not like she would even be given the choice that Max is given if she had wound up in that situation. I do wish we had more Mari, though. Mm -hmm. Agreed. I wish she'd been around earlier, but. Yeah. I I mean, there are many things tied up in that. Like, I wish that that they had done different things with uh, discussing slavery. But. Yes, I suppose um, this connects with 
uh, for me to the Thomas Hamilton thing because he's the first character where we're explicitly introduced to the idea that the best way to understand him is through a book. That's true. And that that is a book about books. Okay, neither of us have read it. You need to tell us more. Okay. So, as I say, it's uh, a book about a man who thinks he has read a lot of romances um, in Spain, and he thinks that he is in one. So he renames himself as uh, the Hidalgo Don Quixote of La Mancha, and he goes on a quest, and um, he's got his loyal squire and his noble steed and his mistress, and all of these are just around him are normal people who are either playing along or are trying to get him out of his madness. But he perseveres in it. From I think from a popular culture knowledge of, of what happens in Don Quixote, you think it's about someone who's like trying to achieve something and, and won't be convinced otherwise, right? But like the framing of that and the the introduction of Thomas as like read this book to understand him. I mean, that would suggest that Miranda thinks that he is like completely nonsense not nonsensical, but like completely unrealistic. Not completely, because well, that quote that Marty says, that's meant to be from the book, but is not actually from the book. All right. Let's just pretend it is. Yes. Well, it's not. It's from Man of La Mancha. But... <laughs> Marty's favorite movie. Yes. She She's a big fan of theater at all. Yeah. Who wouldn't be? It's a, it's something that we have in common. Absolutely. It's very... <laughs> hashtag relatable. <laughs> so... That quotation reframes his madness as a kind of alternative way of seeing the world. Hmm. And as perhaps a better way of seeing the world that the rest of the world has failed to recognize. Wait, so are you saying that my, my what I just called popular conception of Don Quixote is actually coming from Manuel Macha? Quite possibly, yes. Yeah, I mean, which I also haven't seen, but I saw that one song from, like, at the Tony Awards. You know what I'm dream, talking about. Dream, dream the Impossible Dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's a yeah. Film. All right, great. Well, maybe we should watch it. It's, yeah. a, it's a related text. It's a source text for Black mm-hmm. Sales. It is. Oh. But see, I think I'm even more abstract because I think I came across Don Quixote initially as a small child because there's a parody of him in the Asterix books. Are, are those mm-hmm. are those some um, British books that I don't know about? Asterix. They're um there is <laughs> Natasha's put her hands over her face. Um they are as famous as Tintin. They're French. They are French. They're French. Don Dessine about two little, there's like two Gauls during the Roman Empire who come from a village that has a magic potion that gives them super strength so they're never conquered by the, by the, by the Roman Empire. And it's just a series of like 20 or 30 children's comics about the Roman Empire and Gauls with lots of little fight scenes, but also primarily a lot of puns. That's how I learned how to read. Wow. I don't know. So many these- puns and they're in French. Did these come to America? Yeah. Yeah. They're very, they're very, very popular. They're like the same level of popularity as Tintin, I would say. All right. Ignoring Elizabeth's cultural ignorance. Uh, Don Quixote. But the implication of saying that this is the way to understand Thomas is that he is, you know, what we think of as uh, quixotic. That he is someone who is going to go into a situation without in a kind of idealistic way where he's got his own view of reality that doesn't necessarily match up to everyone else's. Right. Which, I mean, so so you don't think, I mean, she was like lightly teasing him when she said, yeah. right. But yeah. it, it does make me wonder, actually, you know, what she actually, what she thought of it. And I, I don't actually really feel like I have a full sense of Miranda's 
Well, she's always much more of a kind yeah. of a pragmatist, definitely a pragmatist. Than, a realist than he is. So, for sure. but I'm not sure what that means in the positive. I understand what that means in the negative. She's like, well, we shouldn't do this because the danger is too great, or you shouldn't do this, you know. Well, I think she's been helping him the whole time because, like, she's like the society lady, and they clearly have a good relationship, and they're supporting each other. But I think it's one of those classic things where one person in the partnership is slightly overshooting in terms of idealism, and then the other one's reining them back. And that's also James's role. But then once Thomas is gone, then James takes over his role and also is massively overshooting, and Miranda can no longer hold yeah. him back. Also, Thomas totally converts James by the yeah. time, right? Like, oh yeah, for sure, because like that's the whole arc of their story is him just like going full on way too far, and then it's like we've got too much fuel in this <laughs> rocket. <laughs> oh, I love the part where he's like, Thomas should be the governor, and she's like, oh boy, wait a second, like. <laughs> too far it's like i've got i got off the ship five minutes ago and i need to tell you that we need to take over the bahama islands and she's just like we just remodeled the house but the thing is what she loves about thomas is his idealism but um i think she doesn't see it as an idealism that can be translated into a concrete program of action which before he meets james it never is it's something that he talks about in the salons Oh, and so perhaps James is like a dangerous influence because he's finally found someone who has these practical skills that he needed all along. And James just ruined everything by being so competent. Silver was right. It really was his fault. I am so desperate to read. This is not even on topic, but I'm so desperate to read just like a full on like novel length two tier romance, which starts off with all of the, the kind of the courtship between Thomas and Miranda that we never see. Because I really want to see more of that. And then the latter half is just the kind of the, the ending we don't see. Like a nice season two AU where we've got the Thomas James romance. Which obviously we've seen a lot of coverage of and we're also writing because it's beautiful. Why but are you like, saying this to like torment you know? us? Because no one yeah. is like, you, ha- you have to write it. You can't just say you want it. Because it just hurts yeah. me to think yeah. that no, you know. <sighs> and and I want to write it, but I'm not going to write it. So just, <laughs> it's up to you. Yeah. Come on, Gav. You can do it. Yeah, no, I already started I already started a Black Sails fanpick last autumn, and then I had to take a break for Star Wars and Star Trek and haven't will gone you, back to it. So will I'm you come back to it? Monster. I should yeah, do. do it. I think now we've, now we've kind of reached the point where we're fantasizing about fanpick, it's time to go on to our very final topic, which is Jacobites, because Elizabeth and I cannot, cannot end without discussing <laughs> Jacobites. <laughs> Jacobites. Shall we say what the, who the Jacobites are? Do you want to do a... Do you want to do a history of Britain? I actually would like, I would like Natasha to explain who the wigs and the twins are. Oh, gosh! <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. don't understand. For the listeners at home, Elizabeth has been in the habit of messaging me, usually around, you know, one in the morning. Uh, Which is a normal time. It's like eight o'clock my time. You're not supposed to check them at night. You're supposed to see them yeah. when you wake up. Yes, because there's nothing like waking up to. Natasha, who are the wigs? <laughs> All right. Please explain to me everything about the origins and significance of 18th century Whiggism. I do. I, I need to know. The Whigs, you know the difference, Gav, don't you? I mean, I kind of do, but not really, because they don't really have what we think of as contemporary ideologies. No, no, no. That's true. So it's a little harder to keep those ones in track. And as I've been telling my students this week, uh, a lot of it is so much about personal relationships. So yes, the, these two parties have kind of particular ideological and political positions, but people will switch back and forth very easily. And a lot of it has to do with how they feel about particular people, as opposed to how they feel about ideologies. Which 
I think is the same. This is something when we saw the Jacobite exhibit. I remember you, Gav, were asking about why people would be on one side or the other, thinking it has something to do with being well, a Protestant was, or a it Catholic. It was more like, it wasn't so much that I was asking, but it was more like we were going through this very large exhibit all about the Jacobites in Scotland and Bonnie and Prince Charlie specifically. It wasn't really like I was asking, it was more like it was a kind of just asking the universe oh, in horror. Yeah, no. It just being like, why were they, why were they so invested in this? Just, just don't bother. Like, what is it? And I think it's like, partly it's because it's like, it's a stand in for the concept of like wanting to replace the leader. And this was the one that you could replace him with that was within your conventional bounds of who should be in charge, which is a king. Right. Yeah. Um, what kind of Scotswoman are you? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm one who is neither Protestant nor Catholic. So I was raised very much within this divide existing around me, but I was not personally engaged with it. So, right. I mean, the Jacobites don't necessarily align along those lines. Yes, a lot of them were Catholic, but there were Protestant ones as well. Yes, but I mean, in terms of the reason why the Jacobites still have a very large impact on the cultural life of people living in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. It is now very much about the mm, religion. That's but true. I, I also think that people tend to want to do this sort of thing where they're like, well, all this stuff was Protestant v. Catholic or whatever. I mean, even like the inter-European wars or whatever, but like... Then it was less so, now it is, because that's what we've made it. But like at the time it was like, you know, because the reason why I bring it up is because... Um, yeah, I feel like we've not even no. explained why this is relevant no. to black sales. <laughs> but because, you know, like there's there's a brief mention of Jacobite in season one with Horny Gold, who was... Um, historically a pirate who was kind of Jacobite oriented and there were were various pirate factions within these communities in the Bahamas um, during the golden age of piracy who were affiliated to some extent with Jacobites and like and it's like obviously they weren't like going to Britain and being like let's bring in King James but that would be their affiliation to Bain was Yes, Bain, so Vane was a Jacobite and he wrote to the exiled court, which we should actually explain what the Jacobites are, but he wrote yeah, to the- we haven't done that. He wrote to the Jacobites and asked if they would come and attack the British. Yeah, I mean, the simple explanation of what Jacobites are, are there are a bunch of people who thought that the, de- the family of the deposed King James, so his son, who would have been James III, should be king rather than the current mm-hmm. monarchs. And they were also, the point was that King James was yeah. Catholic. But this is why this doesn't matter. Because uh, <laughs> Jacobites always matter. Jacobites do not matter for black sails. Because yes, there is this kind of backstory of the pirates um, having Jacobite leanings and, and being connected to that story. But I think what black sails very deliberately does is not really invoke that. Because the point it's making is that in a way it doesn't matter who the king is. That that's not the story it's telling. That yeah, it's but- not concerned with European politics. It's a but in a way, it's fine. Like, obviously, I love Black Sails. But, like, <laughs> to take Charles Vane, who was a much different figure than the the character in the show is, like, total, complete. Yeah. New, like, it's just they have the same name. I don't think the real Charles Vane had abs like that, I would say. Uh, but I don't know. Are you sure? Are I don't know. Sure? I don't know. He always wears a full outfit. He doesn't wear just pants. Sorry, trousers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, like, you know, there, unfortunately, there, there is no perspective of the historical, the Charles Vane like figure where it's not about you know fighting for freedom against the tyrannical oppressor. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of these pirates were actually very political, and it was just as petty. 
And I I agree in real life, but I also think that um, there's a reason. That's like at that point you've got too many protagonists. I completely agree with what they did, even though obviously Charles Bain is very annoying for the first season and a half. But I mean, they I think they do a really good job of illustrating the concept of the petty and interpersonal struggles because that is like all of the power struggles within the individual the individual ships where they're trying to like like a new captain or whatever. So by the time you add the concept of Charles Vane in, in as a power player who has intensive political affiliations, it's just like, okay, you I, can't, I think that might be much. overstating. I don't think he was really a power player. I'm not necessarily saying him either, but I do think that there's, um, there's a tendency to kind of make them a little more ideologically pure and, you know, like fighting for freedom kind of stuff. And I think, you know, the I, I think that that gets muddled as the show goes on. And I'm glad that they, I, I actually don't, really think upon a second viewing they made Vane more complicated significant in a significant way in the later I, I was surprised the second time around I don't think it's about ideological purity I think it's about streamlining the kind of story that's being told yeah I yeah I agree I just kind of don't really think he adds much and uh I just now it's just turned into me hating on <laughs> Charles Vane so this this took a turn I'm sorry Jacobites <laughs> Jacobites but I think the point they're making in uh, in particular, in that moment when Woods Rogers goes to the Spanish governor, because Woods Rogers and the Spanish governor have are absolutely opposed. They're on opposite sides of a war that's happening at that point. Uh, they're opposite religiously. The Spanish governor literally killed his brother. And yet he's willing to um, bypass that because he wants his support against the pirates and against the slaves. And that that's the opposition the show is drawing and putting in all of these other factions and these other political disputes would have muddied that. Well, but now that you're saying that actually, it kind of makes me feel like Woods Rogers does what I wanted, which is true. Like he, he did because Woods Rogers historically and in the show, he's not saying I'm, I'm coming to the Bahamas for King and Country or Queen and Country or I can't remember what yeah. year we're talking about. King and Country. King, uh, yeah. King. Um, you know, he's he's a merchant. He's a slave trader. Uh, mm. That I wish the show had mentioned because um, that's where he made his money. And, you know, like he wants the pardon so he can control the trade in the Caribbean. And historically, he wanted them first in Madagascar so he could control the trade. But you know what I mean? So it's like he's a very realistic figure to me. I just I just think that sometimes with historical dramas, we get really wrapped up in like these grand themes of freedom and whatever, when actually a lot of people are acting on a really low human mm. petty level. That's like just about like, you know, well, if you want that, you can watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> what? No, no. But I think we get that in, in Black Sails, right? Like, I don't, you know, like Woods Rogers yeah. isn't, isn't giving a big speech about how he's doing it for England. You know, like, I don't even know if any of the Navy people would give a speech like that. They're like, I'm doing my job, you know, but it's not like. But civilization. Yeah. Yeah, civilization. But like one of the things I liked when I was rewatching was um, it's relatively subtle because you don't see them actually like disembarking, but a bunch of the British naval officers just leave at the point where Woods Rogers starts to go downhill. And the ones who are left are the diehard loyalists, both to him and to the concept of, you know, stomping down on right. the Bahamas. So that's the reason why like the hardcore psychopaths are there. And then the ones who are just like, this is my job, are like, I'm just going home. This is nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> Right, I think that's historically accurate, though. I think a bunch of them were like, "We're going because this is you. You've lost yeah, control." And also, but it's also accurate to like yeah. literally the way people behave in that yeah. scenario. <laughs> to, to be clear, the, him like getting the Spanish involved was not that they invented that, which fine. 
So it's not a show that's historically accurate. It's not a show that's um, accurate to a particular source text, whether that's Treasure Island or the stories of the pirates themselves. But it's kind of, it's playing upon all of those things and putting them into a blender to create something that would be a story for today. I think that's the important part of it, though. Like, the choices that they make reflect that the fact that it was made right now, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so me saying, like, oh, I wish there were some characters that were a little more ambivalent, like, maybe not, you know, like, maybe maybe in 10 years ago or 10 years' time, they would have done that, or they wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't have done X, Y, or Z. But, like, I do also think it feels very, like, of this moment. Yeah, I mean, not to be hokey, but every new period of historical drama reflects the present as much as it tells us anything about that historical period like it tells us what we value that's not that's not hokey at all that's just a true statement Mm -hmm. good (laughs) well i think it is it can be controversial i think people do get very bogged down in um discussions about uh historical accuracy as an ideological thing so there was a lot of debate for example when um the show jamestown aired which I haven't seen, but it's about yes. these women who go to Jamestown, and a lot of the objection to it was that uh, they were too spunky and too feminist. Yeah, I think I participated in that discourse despite literally not having <laughs> seen the show because it was like the, the discourse was happening like I think either slightly before or like one day after the ep- the first episode aired, and the idea was like a bunch of women who were like shipped over to a colony to be wives to the colonists or something, and the point you know they were like you know it's like oh they're like too sexy and like too rebellious and stuff, and it's like literally like read Lysistrata or something like <laughs> you just like people have always had personalities we know this it's just it's all absolute nonsense but um and there's no such thing as pure yeah. historical narrative and no maybe this yeah. is like one of my like favorite bugbears is just like the concept of historical accuracy is absolute just like it almost always gets translated like in terms of this type of criticism in pop culture to historical detail and it like kind of plays into set and design like lots of people got raped so there should be lots of rapes yeah and also like people use it as yeah. an excuse to like be sexist and racist and what have you and then equally people use it as an argument to make sure that things are more representative now which is like a positive effect in terms of pop culture but like equally nothing is ever truly historically accurate because fiction is not a documentary yeah it's still fiction yeah. you have to make it be with modern day actors who have good teeth yeah. And everyone's speaking in English that we can yeah. understand. So it's like, you know, art is a lens through which we experience yes. life. <laughs> okay, yes. but what about when Lord Grantham gives that pro-gay rights speech? Well, he never minds you when people kissed him at Eaton. <laughs> I just could not get over that. <laughs> I think I must have tuned out of Downton Abbey by the time that oh, happened. Oh, you were missing Downton out Abbey makes on me so much it's at, a, it's at a cricket game I and he's it. like... He can't help who he loves. And you're like, on what planet would this person say that? Can I finish on an 18th century literature note? Yes. Uh, So what we were saying about pure historical narrative, I think one of the things that makes Black Sails as a show speak to me so much and kind of fit so much in to my interest is that I work on this period of literature, which is a period when the idea of fiction and factuality and, um, having novels that are purely fiction and being understood as such, as opposed to having some kind of claim of truth and all of these questions uh, is really coming to the fore and being negotiated. And so the fact that this is a show set in that period that is itself dealing with those questions um, is very relevant to my interests and I think works really well. It's exciting. I want to take one of your classes. 
Well, you you well, practically are. <laughs> You're getting private tutoring. Yeah. I could teach. I could teach support. you, but I'd have to charge. Yeah, but I mean, British <laughs> tuition fees are lower than ours, so I could, you know, I could probably scratch it up. Don't Nine thousand pounds, baby. That's a lot of twenty. Oh my god. Well, then I would need to get four <laughs> modules per term. So, get ready. It's gonna be like a full time job, but just me. Just me. Well, I think for this episode, we will have, I will link in the show notes a couple of like reading recommendations. If you, if you want to find Natasha on Twitter, she is at Philistella and Elizabeth Minkle is Elizabeth Minkle on Twitter and on the Fansplaining podcast. And each of us individually has been on the kind of unofficial, official Black Sales podcast, Fathoms Deep, at some point. So you can kind of find us on there as well. Um, Yeah. Thanks for listening to this rather strange and offbeat episode of Overinvested. I'm very glad everyone's listening. We will obviously love it if you decide to tweet us and you can find all other episodes of Overinvested on overinvestedpodcast.com on our social media feeds for Overinvested Podcast and on our Patreon, which is funding us where it's patreon.com forward slash Overinvested Podcast. Thank you. 